there is an awareness in our hearts that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. There's just a sense that all of us feel that things cannot forever be the way that they are. And God's word has the hope, it has the promise that the way things are are not the way that things are always going to be. That there is a Messiah, there is a Savior, and that he is coming. And God's word has given us wonderful details about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet these details are also somewhat terrifying. As we read into the book of Revelation, as we read the Olivet Discourse, we discover that things are going to get worse before they get better. And as the old saying goes, it's always darkest before the dawn. One of the benefits of preaching whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, is that we get everything that God wants us to hear, and we allow the Holy Spirit to determine what comes forth in our pulpit, so that it's not my hobby horse, and it's not my desire, and I'm not allowed to hide things that are in the scripture that may be difficult or uncomfortable. And so when we come to Mark chapter 13 and we look into the Olivet Discourse, we find a section of scripture where Christians do have a great degree of difficulty for a number of reasons. Not the least of which is that it's terribly difficult to interpret. Probably the hardest passage to interpret out of anything that I've studied in my career as a preacher. This is my second opportunity to study and teach the Olivet Discourse. A number of years ago, we walked through the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, and we spent three months on that study. We're going to spend three weeks on the study this time. And so if you have questions and you want further depth on anything that we're talking about, I refer you back to the previous series where you can get the more in-depth discussion on these matters. But today, we're going to look into the middle section of, well, you might call it the introductory section, really, to the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13, verses 5 through 23, concerning the Great Tribulation. And as Christians have different views of this, I'm not going to go into all the different views. I'm just going to present what I think is the right way of understanding that. In our previous study, I spent more time interacting with other views and spelling those out. But for today, we are going to assume that what is written here is not only about the destruction of the temple in the first century after Christ, but that it is also yet future, and that there is a future coming of a great tribulation, and that Jesus has left us instruction as to how to live in anticipation of what is going to happen at the end of the age. Now, last week as we looked into the first four verses of Mark's gospel here in chapter 13, we saw that the Olivet Discourse is presented on the basis of Jesus' statement that the temple was going to be destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem as it caught fire and burned to the ground. And Jesus had predicted this catastrophic event that would result in the death of over a million Jews in the first century in his own lifetime, and it was fulfilled within 40 years of his resurrection. And so, with that as the backdrop, the disciples asked the question, when are these things going to be? You see that there in verse 4. 
Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so, some of what Jesus is going to say in the following verses has relevance to the first century and the things that led up to the destruction of the temple. But, now that we have seen that Jesus Christ did not come back in the first century, we have opportunity to recognize that there's two layers of meaning that Jesus is laying out here in somewhat mysterious form. And that's what makes the passage so difficult. The key to understanding the Olivet Discourse is that the attack on Jerusalem in 70 AD could have been the end of the age and the coming, the parousia, of the Son of Man if the people of Israel had repented and believed in Jesus as their Messiah, the Son of God. You see, when it comes to Bible prophecy, there's times where God tells us what could be if people don't repent. But if people repent, then something else could happen. Well, in the same way here, this is what could have been if the people had repented, but since they didn't, things went in a different direction. All of God's promises, all of his prophecies will still come true. It's just that sometimes they are delayed. You see this in the fall of Nineveh in the Old Testament, reading the book of Jonah, that Jonah came into the city and told them, yet 40 days and the city will be destroyed. And yet the people of Nineveh repented. And so God relented of the judgment and destruction of the city of Nineveh. God had said that it was going to happen, but it didn't happen because they repented. And so in a similar way, there is things that God predicted and prophesied that would have happened if the people of Israel had repented, but they didn't. And so course of history took another direction that was not unknown to God, that he had already planned for. And that double layer of prophecy here in Mark chapter 13 is, I think, what accounts for the difficulty. Some people will read Mark 13 and say, well, it all took place in the first century. It's all past. Some people will read Mark 13 and say, no, it all takes place in the future. Nothing relates to the first century. And I think that the truth is that it is both. Both sides are oversimplifying a complex matter if they are full preterists or full futurists when it comes to the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. Now, whether I'm right on that, we will see in time, but we're doing our best. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, and keep this key of the Olivet Discourse in mind as we look into our verses today. Follow along in your Bibles. I'll read them out loud. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Let's stop there for now. The beginning of birth pains. That's what we have here in verses 5 through 8. And the disciples had asked, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus lets them know that it's not going to be immediately. That there's going to come false Christ. Many will come saying, I am he. That is, I am Christ. And mislead many. And that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. That there's going to be earthquakes and famines. And so there's a number of events that have to take place before the destruction of the temple. And this is exactly what happened in the first century. 
after Jesus was resurrected and ascended, there were wars, there were famines, there were earthquakes, and that those things were indicators that the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple was getting closer. Those were the beginning of those birth pains. Now, Jesus tells us that when we see these things, we must not be alarmed. You see that in verse 7? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Now, put yourself back in the first century context and think of the disciples that Jesus is telling them in the course of these next 40 years, you're going to have a lot of things going on. It's going to be a turbulent time. But recognize that that doesn't mean that the end is yet, that these things have to happen, and don't let it disturb you. Now, it might have disturbed the disciples because they were not expecting things to continue on the way that they were. There'd always been wars. There'd always been famines. There'd always been earthquakes. You can't look at any period in history where you don't see a lot of these kinds of disasters, both human and natural. But the Jewish people, they thought that once Messiah comes, that's the end of this. Messiah is Jesus, that he's here, that there's going to be this kingdom of peace, that God's glory is going to dwell in Jerusalem, there's going to be righteousness, the lion's going to lie down with the lamb, the curse will be removed, and that everything is going to be what we've always hoped for. No longer this fallen, evil world. And yet Jesus comes, and he tells them, well, I'm going to die, and there's going to be wars, and there's going to be earthquakes, and there's going to be famine, and this would have troubled the disciples. They would have been like, well then, was Jesus really the Messiah? I mean, the Messiah is supposed to put an end to all this. And so, we looking back, it's hard for us to think in the first century context, but that's what we always want to do. We want to read the Bible in its context and try to listen to it the way that the first hearers would have heard it, because that's the key for us to be able to understand how it applies to us now. But Jesus didn't just say this for the benefit of his first century disciples. It has been written down in Scripture by the Holy Spirit so that it could be a benefit to us as well. And what the Holy Spirit said to those first century disciples of Christ, the Holy Spirit speaks to us now today. And he says, when you hear of wars, when you hear about famines, when you hear about natural disasters, don't be alarmed. These things have to take place. Everything is moving according to God's plan, according to his purposes. So don't let it shake you. Don't let it make you nervous. Don't let it deter you from what God has called you to be doing in this time as we wait for the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hortatory emphasis, the, the exhortation that is throughout the Olivet Discourse. I want you to recognize this about the Olivet Discourse, that there are 19 imperatives in this chapter. This is not just God giving us information about the future. It is God giving us information about the future, but he's giving us information about the future for a purpose. And if you just focus on figuring out what's going to happen in the future, but you don't focus on why God told you what's going to happen in the future, you're not wise. You're missing the main point. So even if you've got all the charts right and you know exactly what's going to happen, if you're disturbed in your heart, something's wrong. And also, he warns them to not be deceived. So there's these two commands in these opening verses. You see in verse 5, the command, see that no one leads you astray. And the leading astray isn't so much about, you know, misunderstanding end times, 
But the leading astray is stop following Christ. Stop doing what Christ wants you to do. That when we are in a series of crises, it's easy for us to get distracted from what God has called us to. And Jesus says, don't let that happen. No matter how much the world around you falls apart, you just do what I told you to do and don't worry about the world falling apart. See, prophecy is given to us so that when others are falling apart because of the shaking of the world, that we have peace and we have expectation. In Luke chapter 21, verse 26, in the parallel account, Jesus says there will be people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Do you ever feel like fainting with fear? Do you ever have a sense of foreboding about what is coming on the world? Well, don't do that. Jesus has told us these things have to be. Our blessed hope is not changed by any world events that are going around us. If we have to go through famine, if we have to go through war, if we have to go through persecution, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Just be faithful. Just be ready. Just be expecting Jesus Christ to come back. And that's really the big idea of Mark chapter 13 as well as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew and Luke's account to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ, to be expecting the coming of Jesus Christ, that God has written this prophecy in a way that the first century Christians would be thinking, he's coming. You know, there's the earthquake, there's the famine, there's the wars, he's coming. Let's get ready. And God wanted them to think that he was coming because it's only in that sense of expectation that the Christian is really able to thrive in this fallen age, this evil age that we live in. If you lose that sense of expectation, if you lose that hope that Christ is coming back and you think, well, you know, we just have to make the best of it in this world and we just have to to do our best to pass on to the next generation as good of a culture or as strong of a culture as we can, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to get lost. You're going to lose your sense of purpose as you try to build something in this world without a foundation. You're going to get diverted from what God has called you to do. And instead, let's see what he does call us to do. Look at the next verses. Pick it up again in verse 9. We're going to read down through verse 13. But, here's another exhortation, another command from the Lord Jesus Christ. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. For what? For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, there's another command, about what you are to say. But say, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Yes, there are certain signs that Jesus has told us that are going to let us know that the end is near. These are just the beginning of birth pains. But we also need to be aware of the 
proclamation of the gospel that is our responsibility in this time and our courage to be able to stand in the face of persecution. The proclamation, the persecution, and the perseverance. That's what these verses are about. When he says, be on your guard, he's saying, don't get so caught up in all the events around you that you get distracted from what your purpose is in this world. Your purpose in this world is to proclaim Christ. You are here to share the everlasting gospel with people who have an opportunity to gain eternal life. The church of Jesus Christ has the most important job that has ever been entrusted to any people in the history of the world. Let us not lose our focus. Let us not get distracted. Let us proclaim the gospel to all peoples and expect opposition. We need to recognize, just as those first Christians had to recognize, that we will be delivered over to councils and be beaten by our local government. And we'll stand before our state government and the national government to bear witness before them. Don't think it a strange thing if it becomes against the law to preach the Bible. That's the way it was then. That's the way it is in many countries around the world. Don't be surprised if that happens here. And if it happens here, don't freak out. Don't worry. The disciples were able to handle it in the first century. The Christians in China are able to handle it now. The Holy Spirit was with them. The Holy Spirit will be with us. We don't have to lobby the government for the freedom of speech. We're just going to speak freely. And if they arrest us, we'll speak freely in prison. If they put us on trial, we'll share the gospel with the judge. That's who we are. That's our purpose. If God wants us to suffer, it's only so that the gospel can be more clear, more powerful, that people will know that Christians are not trying to build a political movement, but we're trying to save souls. From the top of the government down to our local government, to all the people that are under their influence, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And they, they will bring you to trial. They will deliver you over. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And basically, that's a summary of the book of Acts. The apostles were arrested. They were taken before the Jews. Paul was given 39 lashes from the Jews five times. He testified before governors. He testified before kings. And he wrote the letter on joy, Philippians, while he was in prison in Rome awaiting a trial that could cost him his life. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now when Jesus says the end, he's not talking about the end of the great tribulation or the end of the age or the end of the world or any of that stuff. Here, the end means to the, the last breath to everything that you have within you, that you are faithful until death, as Jesus Christ said to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, baptizing them, that comes first, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we do the Great Commission, just like we're doing now. 
We let our light shine. We be Christians. We obey the commands of the New Testament. We share that with love with our neighbor. And we suffer willingly for our love for God and our love for our neighbor. That's really the exhortation here in Mark 13, verses 9 through 13. You see how practical prophecy is. It's got a purpose. It's here so that we can know what to expect and be able to go through the difficulties without being shaken by those difficulties. So Jesus told us the signs that the end is approaching, the beginning of the birth pains, and he told us that we were going to be persecuted. People were going to betray us and hand us over to the authorities and that we'd be put to death, and that's exactly what has happened to the church from its beginning up until today. Now it switches. Now we're going to move in verse 14 from a general statement about how things were in the first century how things have continued throughout the ages to a specific event that has not yet happened and that is very important in understanding the truth about Christ's coming. That's in verse 14. Let's read verses 14 through 23. But, you see, he's setting something different here in contrast to to all these other things that have to take place. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. I'm the one who's reading it. Hopefully I understand and I'll be able to explain it to you. Let the reader understand. A a rare place in scripture where Mark butts in to what Jesus is saying and says, hey, this is important. It's kind of cryptic. You're going to have to do some work on this. You need to understand this though. It's important. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days... There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. There's that command again. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. All right, so this is a fascinating passage right here. This is where we're going to be spending the rest of our time this morning. The abomination of desolation. Let the reader understand, what is Jesus referring to? The book of Daniel is essential to understanding the Olivet Discourse. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his coming, his future kingdom, and the events that are going to lead up to that are all built upon the book of Daniel. Without understanding the book of Daniel, the Olivet Discourse will not make sense to you. And so it's essential that we understand exactly what God meant, to the best of our ability, what Daniel was referring to. Turn back in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. 
Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, I left out Lamentations, the small one in between, and then Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now, just a a brief summary of where we are in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 is a prayer of Daniel for his people, particularly Jerusalem, for a restoration after the nation has been taken captive, after the capital has been destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and Daniel is praying for the restoration of his people. And God answers his prayer by sending Gabriel in order to reveal to Daniel, for all of us as well, what God's plan is in order to save Israel and to bring in everlasting righteousness, as it says Let's pick it up in verse 24. Here's Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So basically, everything that God has promised, all the blessings for Israel, are going to come to pass at the end of this 70 weeks. Now, the word week in Hebrew is kind of like our word dozen. It doesn't necessarily mean a week of days. Like a dozen can refer to a dozen of a lot of things. And so in Hebrew, their word for seven, it can refer to seven days, since that's how many days there are in the week. But it can refer to other things of seven. And in context here, when you start to study all of Daniel's prophecies, it becomes clear that what we're talking about here are groups of seven years. So it's 77s, literally, and the 77s are periods of years. 490 years is 70 times 7. So within 490 years, God is going to bring about all of these blessings. No more sin, everlasting righteousness, anointing the most holy place, all of that. And so let's pick it up there in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, and there I don't think we're just talking about an anointed one, I would read that as the anointed one, Christ, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks where it's going to be built with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So the translation here is, is different from the way I'm going to preach this. I'm going to say that there's this seven weeks then when you have it built, and then there's the 62 weeks after that, and that's when the coming anointed one comes at the end of those 69 weeks. And you see that there in verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. And here, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah that is cut off, is Jesus. So after the 62 weeks, the anointed one is cut off and shall have nothing. He's the Messiah, but he's not ruling and reigning over Israel. He's been cut off as the people have rejected and crucified him. And now we skip forward. At the end of the 69 weeks, there is a break. Now it's not indicated very clearly in the text, but this is something that we find with prophecy, that God will condense things together because at the time it was given... Daniel wouldn't have needed to know this. 
But now looking back, God is going to make it clear that this 69 weeks, there's a long break between the 69th and the 70th, and that is then leading up to that last week, that last period of seven years. And that's when the people of the prince, oh, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Before that, after the Messiah is cut off, after the 69th week, you've got the people of the prince who is to come, destroying the city and the sanctuary. All right? So Messiah the prince comes, and Jesus, he's rejected by the people, and he says that there's not going to be one stone left on top of another in the temple. Now remember, when Daniel was making this prophecy, there was no temple that the temple hadn't been reconstructed yet. The temple had still been destroyed. And so he's predicting a future temple and a future destruction of that future temple. Pretty remarkable. So it's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary, the people of the prince who is to come. And who were the people who destroyed the temple and its sanctuary, the city and its sanctuary? The Roman people. So that's why we think that this prince who is to come, who becomes a very important person in the book of Daniel and the rest of prophecy, is a Roman that he's of this descent. And its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Sounds like what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13. And then he, who, the prince who is to come, this is the previous referent, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So here is where the covenant is made for that one week. So we had the 69 weeks earlier. Here's that last week, the one week. And for half of the week, which would be the second half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And here's where the phrase comes in, okay? We finally worked our way up to it. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The abomination who makes desolate. The abomination of desolation. So that's what Jesus is referring back to when he says in Mark chapter 13, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. So you see, this is an interesting network of scriptures that are tied together by the Lord Jesus Christ in order for us to be able to understand all that God began to reveal 500 years before Christ in the book of Daniel up to the time of Christ and then for an unknown period of time from Jesus' perspective until the end. And we're still waiting for everlasting righteousness to be brought in. We're still waiting for an end to sin and finishing the transgression. We're still waiting for the anointing of a most holy place in the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ is coming back to establish. And we know that it is a seven-year period left. And that at the halfway point, this prince who makes a covenant, a treaty with the people of Israel, is going to break that treaty and put an end to sacrifice and offerings. That he is the abomination who makes desolate. Now, this is also further complicated but in a, a very interesting way, in chapter 11 of Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11.31 also refers to the abomination who makes desolate. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, also refers to the abomination who makes desolate. Here you see, 
in the context of a whole chapter that is describing wars and espionage and intrigue between what is called the kings of the north and the kings of the south, there arises a king, a prince, who is focused on. He's the one that all the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 10 is is leading up towards. And this one, in Daniel chapter 11 verse 31, is described this way. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So here's the second time in the book of Daniel that we have a reference to the abomination that makes desolate. But here, they set up the abomination that makes desolate, that forces from this king appear and profane the temple and the fortress. Now, this has actually already happened. And Jesus knew it had already happened. It had happened before Jesus Christ came. That God has two different abominations who make desolate in the book of Daniel. One is a part of the fourth kingdom. As you read through Daniel's prophecies, he lays out four kingdoms that are going to succeed from Daniel's time forward for world empires And the abomination who makes desolate in chapter 9 is from the fourth kingdom. We know that when you study through these prophecies in detail. I can't show you everything in the time we have this morning. The abomination who makes desolate here in chapter 11 is from the third kingdom, the Grecian kingdom. And we know who it is. History is very clear on this point. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a ruler over part of the Greek Empire. After Alexander the Great's death, the Greek Empire was divided into four parts among his generals, and then they had dynasties that continued on from that part. And so part of the the dynasty here was taken over by a man named Antiochus, and he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphany means a manifestation of the divine. And he thought of himself as a, a representation of Zeus, on earth. Zeus being the king of the gods, the head of the pantheon, he fancied himself to be a divine manifestation of Zeus. And Antiochus, his idea was that in order to take over the world and rule the world, we need one culture. And that most culture by Antiochus's time had gotten on board with Greek culture. Alexander the Great, his empire, had brought all these nations together and through Greek philosophy, Greek learning, Greek art, the Greek language was spreading among all the peoples. He thought, we can unite the whole world if we all have the same culture. And so he looked at the Jewish people as a problem. Here's this one people that doesn't want to worship Zeus or any of the other Greek gods, Here's this one people who are different in their practices. They won't eat with the Gentile nations. They keep to themselves. They've got all these laws that separate them from the nations. We've got to change these people. They've got to become like the rest of the world. And so Antiochus, he undertook that campaign. He made it illegal for the Jews to circumcise their children. He made it illegal for them to keep the law. He set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. He sacrificed a pig on it. And he demanded by order of death that the Jews give up their Jewishness and become just like the pagans. And many of the Jews were willing to go along with that. But some were not. And the Jews who did not go along with that, they rallied around the Maccabees. 
And the Maccabean revolt in 168 BC was successful in their attacks, their guerrilla campaign against the far superior forces of the Greek rulers. And in 165 BC, they were able to purify the temple and to gain a century of self-rule under Hasmonean kings. That's known as the Maccabean Revolt, 168 to 165 BC. The festival of Hanukkah comes out of this when they rededicated the temple and purified it after Antiochus had set up the abomination that makes desolate. Then after that, they had a special festival celebrating God's goodness in restoring the holiness of their sanctuary. So God gave a preview of what is going to happen. He gave a type of what is going to happen at the end of the age in Antiochus. Antiochus is, in principle, and by historical action, a parallel to what Jesus is predicting is going to happen in the future. The disciples want to know what's going to happen at the end of the age. What's going to happen before Christ comes back, saves Israel, establishes his kingdom, sits on the throne of David, and Jesus says, you will see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Not it. This time it's not just a statue that's being put up in the temple. But turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we had our scripture reading earlier. 1 and 2 Thessalonians are the letters that Paul wrote that give us insight into the rapture, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation, and the man of lawlessness, as he is called. We often more regularly refer to him as the Antichrist. And so at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul corrects the Thessalonians that they are not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus was telling his disciples in the Olivet Discourse. Don't be alarmed. Don't get shaken. Here's what's going to happen. Before the day of the Lord, he says this, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. He's the son of destruction. This is at the end of verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Notice verse 4. This man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, the Antichrist, as he's called, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, we're not going to go into a full explanation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning, but notice that Paul, like Jesus, is referring to this man who is going to take his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And I think that is exactly what Jesus is referring to when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. He, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, is going to be standing in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there is no temple in Jerusalem. So no man can stand in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. But you know what? There was no temple in Jerusalem when Daniel made the prophecy to begin with. But then the temple was rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt again. And the man of lawlessness will stand in the temple and proclaim himself to be God, very similarly to how Antiochus Epiphanes tried to eliminate Judaism. So in the last days before Christ comes back, there will be a king 
who makes a treaty with the people of Israel. But halfway through that seven-year treaty, he will break that treaty with them and he will bring upon the Jewish people such destruction, such distress, that it is incomparable with any other disaster that has ever befallen their nation. And that's saying a lot. If you know the history of the Jewish people, if you know the sufferings that they had experienced under Antiochus, if you know the sufferings that they experienced during Titus's war on Jerusalem in 70 AD and how the people of Israel were slaughtered, if you know about recent history and how the Jews were treated in the 20th century, and for Jesus to say, as he says back in Mark chapter 13, that when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then if you're on your rooftop, you don't go down into the house to take anything out. If you're out in the field and you left your cloak on the other side of the field because you don't want to get hot while you're working, don't go back and get your cloak on the other side of the field. You run for your life because Satan is going to do everything in his power to destroy every faithful Jew at that time. Jesus could not be more clear in the urgency and the trouble of this coming tribulation for the Jewish people. He said, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Now, come back to Daniel chapter 11 once again. There's a third reference to the abomination that makes desolate in Daniel's prophecies, and it comes at the end of his book. Now, as you read about the campaign of Antiochus in Daniel chapter 11, once you get to verse 35, you have a break again. Now, once again, if you were just reading this back in Daniel's time, it would be hard to know if there was a hard, fast break here. The prophecy kind of just blends together. And it's only by looking backwards that we're able to see, okay, there's a break here. Because in verse 35, you see that the wise who are standing against Antiochus, they're going to stumble and be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So here, the angel is explaining to Daniel that this great persecution that the Jews were going to suffer under Antiochus was not the end time. That there is still a future end for God's dealings with Israel, which would be in accordance with the prophecy back in Daniel chapter 9 about the 70 weeks. It's only at the end of that 70th week that then everlasting righteousness is brought in and sin is dealt with. Now in verse 36, it just picks up and it says, "...and the king." And you would think, well, this is still talking about Antiochus, but it's not. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Now, at the time of the end. Now he said before, it was not the time of the end. But now, at the time of the end, 
the king of the south shall attack him. And you think, well, the king of the south must be a reference to the same king of the south that we had earlier in chapter 11. But no, we've gone forward in time. The king of the north now, who's rushing in like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships, he comes into the countries that overflow and he passes through. He shall come into the glorious land. And here we're talking about Antichrist, if you had not figured that out yet. And tens of thousands shall fall. But Edom, Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites will be delivered. Now those aren't nations today, but the nations that are in those lands today, those will be the ones that will be delivered from his hand. And we know that this is talking not about Antiochus, but about the future abomination who makes desolate, because uh, these details did not take place in Antiochus' lifetime. And the most important detail about his death also didn't take place for Antiochus. It says that in verse 44, news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So this final abomination who makes desolate dies in the holy land. His tents are pitched between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And Christ comes back and slays him with the breath of his mouth, as it says in the New Testament. But the Old Testament Antiochus, he died in Syria and not in the Holy Land. And there's many other things that make it clear that these are different people. And uh, if you're interested in that, I'd be happy to share that with you. But for time's sake, let's skip ahead to chapter 12, verse 11. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Now, from Daniel 11:36 to Daniel 12, verse 13, that's the section that deals with the time period that Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. It's all based upon this. It all flows out of this. And this section from Daniel 11:36 to the end of chapter 12, it's key to understanding the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse. And the abomination of desolation is referenced one more time here in chapter 12, verse 11. It says, From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, which was predicted back in Daniel 9, remember the prophecy of the 70 weeks, in the middle of the weeks, he puts a stop to the sacrifice and the offering. So from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. So go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So the end of the days, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Daniel's talking about. The abomination that makes desolate is in chapter 9, he's in chapter 11, and he's in chapter 12. But the one who's in chapter 11 is just a prefigurement of the one that's talked about in chapter 9 and in chapter 12. I know it's complex, I know it's difficult, but that's the way prophecy is. And it's that way for good reason. God has good reason for how he has written the prophetic scripture. It had to be meaningful in the right way when it was written. It had to be meaningful in the right way in the first century. And it has to be meaningful in the right way now. And God has spoken in a way that it benefits every age of believers who have read it and interacted with it. And now that we are closer than ever to the end of the age and the coming of Christ, we have better insight and better understanding than anyone who has been able to look into these things before us. We are in a privileged position 
to be able to read with understanding the book of Daniel and all that Jesus spoke and taught based upon it and what was revealed in the book of Revelation because of the history. Things that were unclear before have been clarified, and so we want to take full advantage of that to be able to understand the best of our ability the prophetic scriptures. Not just so that we can be right and make our charts, but so that we can stand firm, stand faithful, not be shaken by what's going on around us, and just continue on with the mission that God has given to us, knowing God's got it all under control, and it's all going according to plan. Now, there's a lot more that I would love to share with you this morning, but I think that is a good ending point for us, so we'll save some of this other stuff for next week. Next week, we get into the best part of the Olivet Discourse, and that is the coming of the Son of Man himself, picking it up in verse 24, and then getting some of the exhortations that come at the end of the chapter.